Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Now let's turn our attention to Jason Schenker. He is the president and the founder of Prestige Economics. He's also a Bloomberg prophet. He's based in Austin, Texas, currently at the Atlanta Fed's Financial Markets Conference in Amelia Island. And you can follow uh, Jason on Twitter at Prestige Econ. Uh, Jason, uh, were you caught uh, on the back foot by the rise in oil prices? No, we've had an expectation that we would see oil prices rise through the driving season. You know, the unemployment rate we saw it in Friday's report, uh, you know, the lowest we've seen since December 2000. Strong labor market means we're going to see very strong driving demand that summer. Uh, the OPEC risks on top, the Iranian risks of sanctions on top, that just adds fuel to a fire that we already expected would be burning because the U.S. summer driving season is one of the biggest factors for oil prices during the year seasonally. So I want to get a sense of how much is being baked in about the U.S. withdrawing from the Iran pact. If the U.S. does go ahead and withdraw from the nuclear agreement, do you think uh, the oil prices could rise much more from here? Well, I think they could. I don't think it's priced in at all. Um, You know, the technicals and fundamentals that we've seen in the market you know, we're above, we watched the 30-day and the 100-day moving averages. We've been above those now for a little bit. Um, we're above other critical supports. These factors were already supportive of prices. And, you know, while we're seeing a little bit more upside today, and uh, I, I think we're going to see quite a bit more moving forward if we pull out of those. How much? Uh, that agreement with Iran. You know, we could see $5, $10. Uh, you could see a spike even higher than that. I don't think it'd be sustained. And I think once we get past the driving season, I think there's downside risks from higher interest rates. And uh, if the trade uh, factors remain in play, then there's still going to be downside risk there. But we see this sort of bifurcated dynamic of upside through the driving season. This produces more upside, but then in the fall, more downside risk. Jason, how much is this increase in prices really tied to, let's say, the, the back and forth between the strength of the U.S. dollar? Not much. I think that really, if we look, the biggest fundamental driver uh, for oil, like all commodities, is that they're bought and not sold. Uh, The global economy has been doing quite well. And despite what we've seen in industrial metals, where those have been a bit weaker, again, those seasonal dynamics for oil demand right now in the spring where we're trading driving season contracts, refineries are ramping up production. This is a time when you see oil prices rise typically anyway. And now you've got a bit of a pressure cooker because these geopolitical risks. So I'm trying to figure out right now, uh, it seems like last year people were saying, ah, oil is never going to get above $50 a barrel, perhaps get to $60 a barrel. Now we're at $70 a barrel. How much of this is being driven by the fact that Saudi Arabia really wants to hit that $80 a barrel mark for the Saudi Aramco IPO possibly uh, to happen next year? Yeah, I've seen this $80 thrown around, whether that's their, you know, their actual explicit target or not, that their explicit target was to push oil inventories to a five-year, uh, towards that five-year average range. That's been the goal of OPEC and non-OPEC members. It's been clear, something we've talked to our clients about, is that 
Saudi Arabia is prioritizing balance sheet over income statement, right? That's what they're doing. We'll sacrifice selling a fewer barrels now in order to increase the valuation of our business. That's very clear. Um, upside risks, we've been assessing the price risk this summer. We would see in the $60, $70 range with potential spikes uh, to 80. That's something we were talking to clients about in December as a risk for the summer. So that definitely becomes a, a more material risk now with the geopolitical situation that doesn't mean it'll be sustained because the trade risks, global growth, and interest rates will determine what happens once we get past the summer. But for now, best job market, you know, in 18 years, you're going to see a lot of people on the road and families driving down from Chicago to Disneyland or the Disney World are the kinds of things that you see driving oil prices in the summer. And driving a lot of other bills too. If you're going to uh, Disney World, just saying. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jason, of course, of course. I, I want to get, I want to, I want to get a sense of what you think of shale drillers and the prospect of them really ramping up production in response to the higher price, uh, meaning that they're basically going to offset some of the demand with just uh, more output. What do you think is of that? Well, I think there's a couple things that, you know, you still have on the one hand, these folks, they're looking at the curve. They know the seasonalities of pricing. And if they're making the drilling decisions, you know, they're still going to have to understand and they deal with those dynamics. So I think that you're going to see more production, but, you know, once bit and twice shy, I think you're going to see um, still some of this holding back. And I'd say that for the funds that are out there, the discussion is a lot of money on the sidelines. There have been very large funds that have been raised in the last couple of years. I'm in Texas. Uh, I've been talking to a lot of these folks for the last year or so, and they've, they're still looking for distressed assets. I got to tell you, it's 70 bucks a barrel looking for sweetheart deals with distressed assets. If that's your mandate, it's going to be a pretty tough, tough find for you. Jason, just quickly, what's the best way for investors to profit from this rise in oil prices? Well, you know, I think if folks want exposure, then they need to be looking at companies that are producing oil. Um, they also may want to be thinking about uh, the, the, the underlying commodity as well, that the price is likely to rise. Those are probably the areas where you're going to see people play this. Want to thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Jason Schenker is the president and the founder of Prestige Economics. He's also a Bloomberg prophet, and you can follow uh, Jason on Twitter at Prestige Econ. We want to visit now in the world of real estate with Ken Weisenberg. He is a partner in charge of the real estate services group for Eisner Amper, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Ken, thanks very much for being with us. The news today, of course, is Blackstone agreeing to buy Gramercy Property Trust. Uh, the price tag is $7.6 billion. It's a 15% premium over the closing price on Friday. Uh, why do you think they're making this move to buy Gramercy Property Trust. If you look at the overall market for warehouse space, um, it's in high demand because of the increase in online sales and, this, and the next day or same day delivery requirements that people are expecting. And uh, this is a good entry for Blackstone into this marketplace. They're paying a premium over the current prices and prices for this kind of space have been up. Last year, the um, REIT um, warehouse REIT space was up about 16%, where the overall REIT market was down about 8 or 9%. And they didn't get a big bump um, in REITs for, from the Trump tax cuts yet. So 
this seems to be a very good spot for them to go into. Uh, the um, space is in high demand. It'll continue to be in high demand uh, for the same day delivery. And also um, other industrial uses are on the rise. Companies are bringing um, operations back into the United States because of the repatriation tax cut. And you'll see an um, increase in industrial activity in the United States in general and yeah. warehouse in, in particular. So Reed's uh, stating for Real Estate Investment Trusts, uh, just uh, to uh, make that clear, last week, Prologus, uh, the world's largest warehouse owner, agreed to acquire DCT Industrial for nearly $8.5 billion. So you are seeing the consolidation in this space. Can you just talk a little bit about what the difference is between a warehouse and a big box store? Because frankly, I hear about how warehouse space is in a real great demand. And then you hear about all these suffering malls and you think, well, I mean, put two and two together, just make the malls into warehouses and you've got your uh, demand sated. Well, warehouse space generally leases substantially less than retail space. When you look How at much a, less? Oh, uh, you know, retail space would be anywhere depending where it is. So on Fifth Avenue, retail space is four to $5,000 a square foot. In the suburbs, it might be, you know, 75 to $100 a foot, but warehouse space in the suburbs is probably 15 to $20 a foot. Oh, wow. So it's a huge difference in square footage. And also, if you look at the parking arrangements, um, in a big box store in the suburbs, there's a ton of parking. Um, in a warehouse, there isn't. It's basically space for trucks. Um, so if they do convert an existing big box store um, into warehouse, they have a lot of extra land available to build additional warehouse space on that property. It could be an interesting play. Well, and then I guess there has to be some massive realized loss if there is conversion of, say, a big mall into a warehouse space just because of the smaller price that they can charge, right? Right. I don't see a large mall being converted to warehouse. Um, a large mall, um, to the extent that it, it's going to be doing a redevelopment, will have entertainment, residential, and office space added to it. Um, you might see a reduction in the number of cars over the next 10 years due to um, self-driving automobiles. Uh, people will not need to have their own cars and, and going to the mall will be you know, tapping your phone and a car will appear in your driveway. Um, so it's gonna be an interesting um, change over the next 10 years in terms of technology. Um, I think the malls are going through a repositioning and a reimagining today, which is really interesting. It's, it's an experiential development in malls, um, which I love that word. Uh, and and if, if you go down like, in, in Florida is a really great example. So the Bell Harbor Mall was the classy mall. All of the major stores were there. And they're adding restaurants. They're adding Pilates class studios, Palantine bike stores. You know, So it's an experience to go there because you're going to eat, you're going to exercise, you're going to, to, the, to the movies right there. Um, and there's good shopping and the, you know, the best stores. Um, and that's an experience as opposed to just, I'm going to the store to buy a dress or a pair of pants, which you can now do online much easier. Public versus private. Better to be a private real estate company these days? Um, REITs have not had um, a huge uptick, um, and I'm surprised at that. The new tax cuts really favored REITs. Um, income from a REIT is subject to a 20% business exclusion, um, so that you're paying a 29.6% rate on REIT income. Um, General dividends are 20%, but the corporation pays 21, so the effective rate there is 37. Um, so REITs really have a tax benefit, and that hasn't been factored into their pricing. Why do you think that is? Um, 
I think it's complicated for most people to understand, but you know, for analysts and stuff, they're looking at it and REITs are, are valued based on the dividend payout um, and and net asset value, but it's it's really the people are buying it because of the dividend stream. Um, and if interest rates are going up, you get 3% on a 10-year treasury and 3% on a REIT, you're not gonna pay as much for the REIT. So I, I wanna just shift back to the idea of the warehouse space. And it's a, it's a question that Pim raised before the segment where he was saying, you know, are we seeing peak valuations here just because we are seeing such premiums bid up uh, for these spaces at this time? You know, there's a lot of money waiting to be placed in the market. Uh, the stock market is experiencing significant volatility um, over the last um, 10 or 11 months. People look for safe investments or safer investments that have a steady rate of return, and real estate provides that. So you're seeing um, real estate becoming a much more attractive investment. When you look at what's going on in the world in terms of real estate, um, affordable housing is in high demand. Um, housing in general is in, in high demand. Hotels have been in high demand. Um, office less so. Retail much less so. Um, but warehouse, because of the of the shift in consumer behavior brought about by companies like Amazon, um, you're seeing the darling of the uh, of the investor. Real quick, have we seen uh, rates to rent out warehouse space go up recently? Yes. How much significantly? I don't have the exact statistics, but it's on the rise. Because demand is on the rise. Fascinating. Thank you so much for being with us. Ken Weisenberg, partner in charge of the Real Estate Services Group for Eisner Amper in New York. We really appreciate you being here, especially uh, on a day when Blackstone uh, is buying Gramercy Property Trust. This is the second multi-billion dollar takeover of a warehouse company is in just the past two weeks. Fascinating space. We will continue uh, to keep tabs on it. Customized insoles using 3D printing technology. How is it done and what is the goal? Here to help us understand this new business adventure is Shamil Hargovan. He is the co-founder and the chief executive, along with Hannah Shakritz, the director of product and design for Weaves. That's W-I-I-V-V. That's W. Double I, double V. All right, Shamil, tell us about Weave and the science behind custom-made insoles. Hey, Pim, thank you. Yeah, we've uh, we've effect effectively taken medical-grade scan technology, put it on a phone, uh, and we're able to now, from the comfort of your living room, uh, measure your feet or other body parts, and then run that through a system where we customize the product designed for your body. Uh, we biomechanically enhance the product to serve your body, uh, and then ultimately use additive manufacturing and 3D printing to print the product in the United States and send it to your door. Shamil, before we do anything else, we have to get something out of the way. You ran a marathon in flip-flops, is that right? 
I apologize. That was our product engineer, Chris Bellamy. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, okay, I'm just making sure. And he lived to see the uh, the other day. Uh, you know, this is a fascinating issue because it sort of raises a question: Is this the future where you could just get a scan, have clothes or shoes manufactured at a 3D printing press that doesn't require that many people there to do it, and then it gets shipped right to you? Is that what we're going to see, say, in 10 years from now? I'd say sooner than that, but yes, uh, we're here. Um, we're starting with footwear uh, and, and, and products like orthotics and insoles, but it's just a matter of time before we get smarter, quicker, and it becomes something increasingly cheaper for everyone to have. So, Hannah, come on in here because I'm trying to figure out the actual process of the 3D printing and how you figure, how you make it work. Can you just give walk me through what happens once someone submits a scan of their foot uh, to the point when they get the product? Yeah, so it's, a, it's a, actually a very simple process. You download our app, you pick the product that you want, and then with just a few photos, we digitally map your, your feet and create a, a 3D model of the product that we're building and then can send that to the 3D printer, print the product overnight, and get it to your door in under 10 days. So you don't own the 3D printing press? We do. Oh, you do? Okay, yes. so you have a press. Uh... We have a manufacturing facility in San Diego. Shamil, what prevents other companies from coming in and doing exactly the same thing? I mean, there are ways to buy orthotics now. You can have them custom molded, I guess, to your feet. But what prevents someone else from coming in, scanning someone's foot, and using 3D printing technology to offer a competitor? Absolutely. Let's just set a really quick piece of context. What's happening that's accelerating what we're doing, for starters, is we have scanning technologies and we've got the big players, Apple, Intel, Microsoft, Google, spending lots of money there. On the printing side, GE, Hewlett-Packard, Carbon, 3D Systems, uh, what we are the leaders at is taking that scan and converting it into a 3D printable file. And we do that in a matter of seconds. Uh, and that's the really that's the patents, that's the technology, that's what we've continues to innovate in is it's almost a... Uh, machine learning meets computer vision meets customization algorithms. And so that, that, that's our core technology that's uh, hard to replicate. So I'm just trying to figure out uh, the advantage to the consumer. Uh, clearly, it's because if you do have a custom fit based on your technology, that's an advantage. What about the cost, Hannah? Oh, the cost is, is affordable, but I want to touch on custom again. So the, the reason we do what we do is is not just because custom is cool. <laughs> we truly believe that custom fit products will really impact how you move and you feel and you function on a day-to-day basis. So the, the Boston Marathon was an extreme example of that, where you have a product that's custom t- to each of your feet. Uh, and it will impact how, how you run, not just a marathon, but even how you walk to work and how you stand and how you can uh, you know, feel how your mood is during the day. So um, our goal is feel and function how you move and live, um, and you, you'll be able to receive our sandals for $129, a very accessible price, and our insoles from 79 to 99 Shamil, maybe speak a little bit about uh, the actual library, the database of scanned images that you have, because doesn't that also make it possible for you to then customize it based on what you've done in the past? Absolutely. 
the data here is, is the actual gold mine, so to speak. Uh, Weave has an extremely large repository of footwear data we've collected and uh, we actually acquired through one of our acquisitions in 2016. That was ESOL, right? That's correct, yes. Uh, and the idea here is that the more data we have, almost like you know the search algorithms, the, the companies trying to bring AI into the world, the more data you have, the more you're able uh, to kind of get this right in terms of understanding the different form factors and feet you're dealing with. Uh, and so this is very critical for our, for our company and its longevity. Really interesting. Thank you so much, both of you, for being with us. Uh, Shamil Hargovin, co-founder and chief executive officer of Weave in Seattle, and Hannah Zakritz, director of product and design for the company uh, based in Vancouver. Uh, thank you so much. Really interesting. And uh, it makes me wonder what else will be able to be printed in those 3D printers. I've seen houses being printed. Uh, I wonder how much they'll be part of our very It's not going to help future. me in a marathon anyway. <laughs> The Oracle of Omaha spoke and the world listened and keeps speaking and the world keeps listening. We're talking about the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholder meeting, which is ongoing. Uh, joining us now is David Dietz, founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, overseeing about $340 million in New Jersey. David, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start first with the loss that Berkshire Hathaway reported due to what they called punishing uh, accounting changes. Can you just talk about what these are and, and whether we should pay any attention to that? Yeah, well, the bottom line is uh, people are not paying attention to that. Um, it, 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 Buffett's always focused on you know economic potential and actual earnings on cash invested. These changes in accounting treatment have have no impact on the value of his investments, on the value of his businesses, and so I think it's widely thought that uh, investors and others should disregard these one-time accounting issues. David Dietz, rat poison. He talked about rat poison, didn't he? <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's a lot of even more colorful language that was used um, in Omaha on Saturday. Um, but, uh, you know, depending on the topic, uh, but uh, particularly Charlie Munger, a man of few words, but they are certainly colorful words that were used to describe all sorts of things, including his uh, dislike of cryptocurrencies. Yeah, that's what Warren Buffett said, that Bitcoin is, is rat poison. Did you find many people there? who disagreed with him. Well, you know, not too many people were raising their hands to argue with him on that, but I think the more important thing really was his reasoning there. And it all goes back for Warren Buffett um, and Charlie Munger on productivity. If you have an asset that can do something for you, that can pay off income, that can grow crops, which can produce a profit, they're all for that. When you have assets like gold, uh, like cryptocurrencies, which just kind of exist in, in trade hands, but at the end of the day, they don't multiply, they're not fertile, then he is very negative on that. And so he analogized cryptocurrency. They both did to one of the biggest investment debacles that the world has ever seen, which was the trading of tulip bulbs, bulbs in the uh, 17th century over in Amsterdam. Um, and so the message was quite clear, 
steer clear. He added to that in some comments this morning when he asked, well, why is Goldman Sachs going to start trading them? And he said, quite frankly, I think some of the senior people at Goldman Sachs probably share the views I have. But, you know, there's a market. The ducks are quacking. So you're going to make a market and try to make some money off the activity. Warren Buffett also had some uh, colorful words for Elon Musk. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I guess Elon Musk kind of started it by calling moats, which is one of the favorite terms that they use to to give you a visual as to the type of protection they like to see around their businesses as lame, um, saying if that's your best defense against marauding uh, armies, you're 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 not much good. And uh, um, there was a lot of chuckling back and forth, but I think there's kind of a, a misunderstanding as to what uh, a, a moat is all about. And and they explained how most are your competitive advantage, a reason why the product you're offering will continue to have a market which is, values it above and beyond your cost of production. And I thought it was, it was kind of cute at the end when they talked about, well, you can make fun of our moats, but we have a nice moat around Seas Chocolates, which is one of their businesses, which is very big in California, of course, where Elon Musk is, and kind of challenged in a humorous way, Elon Musk to, uh, uh, you know, overcome the moat that Seas Chocolate has in California. Um, there's been some tweets back in, well, from Elon Musk that he's saying he may take him up on the challenge, but I'll have to bet with uh, Warren and Charlie that their Seas Candy enjoys a very great moat, and uh, Elon's not going to be able to touch it. What did he say about Apple? Because they did buy, what, another 75 million shares in the first quarter, and it turns out that neither of them actually use an iPhone. Yeah, you know, it's kind of odd. I, I, I think I think the analysis is that it's more of a consumer good rather than a tech company. And, you know, they see people's embrace of the the everything Mac and iPhone ecosphere and see recurring revenues coming from that. So that's one thing. Of course, they, they really like the fact that it was well-priced relative to a lot of other tech companies. It's, it's actually priced um, uh, in terms of price-to-earnings below the overall market. And when you back out the cash that's not being used to create the profits, the uh, price-to-earnings ratio is even less. And they also like the, uh, how Tim Cook thinks, which, to cut to the chase, means that unneeded capital will be returned to shareholders uh, in the form of stock buybacks. And we just saw a 16% increase in the dividend. So I think he likes the financial management at Apple. He likes the product. And quite frankly, when you're a six hundred billion dollar market cap company like Berkshire Hathaway, you need very large targets to invest in so you don't rock the market or end up controlling it and having to file with the SEC. Of course Apple fits that bill to a T. I want to thank you very much for being with us. David Dietz is the founder, the president and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management, giving us his take on the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting that took place over the weekend in Omaha, Nebraska. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.